Good morning. We will be reading 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Appreciate that, Sarah. And I I do appreciate the song choice. Uh, It was wherever Dan is, that is just spot on because we are talking about rest this morning. You know, I, uh, I marvel how people endure hardship. You know, this is part of the human spirit, and we tend to endure hardship best when it follows a certain pattern. We believe that there is an end to our suffering, or that we believe that there's some kind of prize to be won. And so we tell ourselves, yeah, it's going to be unpleasant. And yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to like face this thing courageously and bravely. And uh, at the other end, I'll be stronger. Or maybe I'll have something to show for it. Uh, maybe that thing that you have to show for it is uh, some scars of experience that you say are going to make me a, a better person. Or maybe you entered a relational conflict and you both emerged on the other side with an understanding that was worth coming to. Or it could be something like you hold a new baby, went through that. Or you hold a diploma or a certification. You know, the model of suffering is usually something like this. We prepare ourselves, okay, so we get ready for it. We enter into it courageously and we battle. And then we move into some kind of new reality, And we adapt to these hard things well that way. But we get thrown when there's an unexpected happening and the model for suffering shifts a little bit and it looks like this. We prepare for it. We we enter it. We're courageous and we fight. And then something unexpected happens right here. And the reality that you emerge into is perhaps even harder than the one that you began with. What happens? Well, that sets us on our heels a little bit and starts us wondering, how did this happen? Like, why did it happen? What does this mean for my life now? Well, our model, our way of thinking is is broken. Now, I'll give you a kind of a trite example, okay? Uh, Our family has decided that our kids will have phones. It just makes our life work. My son... Um, wanted a, not a smartphone, but what would you call it? A dumb phone, okay? He wanted like a flip phone, which, you know, hey, okay by me, you know, to have like the old-fashioned. What I didn't realize is it's a little hard to come by those things. Um, you know, something that works with the, the current networks. And so 
uh, I actually ordered it from the manufacturer. And uh, even though they make a decent phone, it took like three weeks, four weeks to get here. We were so excited to boot this thing up, you know, a little SIM card. I got in there, and I didn't read the instructions, of course. I mean, who does? But I, I, I forced it into the SIM slot and didn't realize there was a little slide. And I, I broke the SIM slot holder, and it made the phone worthless. I tell you, I hurt so bad because now not only did I have no phone, a disappointed son, I was about to enter into customer service purgatory. (laughs) So my expectations. Now, maybe a little more serious example. Um, When our first uh, baby came, uh, you know, we knew that delivery and, you know, pregnancy and everything's no joke. So we did what couples do, right? We, we read, you know, learned about Lamaze and breathing and all the books and, you know, we arranged the room and, and we prepared ourselves, right? We were ready for this and we knew that it was going to be a trial, more for my wife than for me, but no, hey, I was with her there and we knew it was going to be a trial, but we knew that we would emerge at the other end with something, you know, really wonderful. Well, then something happened that was unexpected, Early delivery, uh, the whole experience was not what we expected either. Like, I mean, we refer to it as the Pitocin dose from Hades. I mean, the, this, the anesthetist just like cranked it up and walked out of the room. It was, a, it was a terrible experience. And then finally, the doctor held our baby and said, something's wrong. And we emerged with our trial, not with like a new and joyful experience, but into more suffering and uh, more reality that was more painful than it even had begun. And that's one of our examples. And you have your own. I have no doubt that you can say a time I entered into a harder reality than when I began. It appears that the original recipients of this letter here had their model of suffering broken in some kind of way. Paul had prepared them to suffer, and then he commends them because they did it really well. On the other side of that suffering, it appears that they envisioned that their entire community, their new assembly, their new family of God, the ecclesia, they envisioned that this this ecclesia would come at the other end of this suffering into a wonderful new reality immediately, a glorious kingdom ushered in by the returning Christ. And then something happened. Someone they loved died. And they enter that questioning and resetting phrase. Had Paul talked about this? Like, uh, what about the people who died before the kingdom comes? Are, are, what about us that are alive who enter it? Um, are we going to enter it without them? Are they going to be somehow lesser citizens because they weren't here when Jesus came back? Worse, would they be excluded altogether? So they entered that painful time of uncertainty about about the state of those who die before Jesus returns in glory. Which actually leads me to ask this question. Um, How clear are you on what happens after you die? We have Paul's answer, so today we're just going to walk through his answer that led them from uncertainty to hope. The first thing I want you to notice is the discomfort that they felt, and it it demonstrates this. An uninformed view 
of the hope of resurrection can lead you to hopeless grief. Verse 13 says, Paul writes, We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. Don't want them to be uninformed. In other words, what you don't know can hurt you. So how is their view uninformed? Well, with these words, Paul acknowledges something. A couple times he's written, he said to them, hey, you have no reason, need for me to write you, or I've written this to you, uh, and he's just reminding them of stuff. Well, this is the first time where he's saying, you've yet to receive teaching on this. This is new. You are uninformed. He needs to backfill something because he didn't have time to teach them. So the area of deficiency, their uninformedness, concerns the welfare of those people who died before Christ came. Now, Paul immediately sets to work about filling out their view on death, and I want you to notice the first way he does that, even the euphemism that he uses for death, which is sleep. Since he uses it repeatedly, I think we're going to profit just by taking a few moments to to think about this, this image of death as sleep. A couple of key verses outside our passage today is going to help us think about this image. The first one's in Revelation. And so uh, John, one of Jesus' disciples, writes, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. I want you to notice three things. First of all, The connection here between death and resting. So life is full of labor and toil. Death is a cessation of that labor. In other words, it's rest. Second of all, I want you to notice on that verse that it says, blessed or happy are those that enter into it. And so we find out that they are conscious. They are with God and they are happy. And also that it says that their deeds follow them. You know, one of the fears that we have is that we're going to be erased less than ourselves in some way. But no, your deeds, the things that you're rewarded for, follow you. And so so you will know the other saints. You will know their identity. You will know what they did. You won't lose your identity. These things are good things to know. Acts chapter 7. This is an account of the early days of the church. And... Here we meet the first Christian martyr, Stephen. So they were stoning him, and he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. So this account of Stephen's death adds this concept that what happens when you fall asleep? That Jesus is there to receive your spirit. And then one more passage from Jesus himself in John 5. Jesus says, don't marvel at this. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So here we see that falling asleep is not reserved for the righteous only. It's also for those who awake to a resurrection of judgment. So we find that death is a temporary state for everybody. And this awakening is on the last day. And this speaks to our need for justice. It tells us how the world works. So even Paul, just at the very beginning, before he's informed them anything about their question, he begins rounding out their view of death by saying, it is 
sleep. Now, when you have an uninformed view of, of death, you're going to have hopeless grief. So having no other model to fall back on, apparently they went back to kind of a pre-Christian understanding of death that made them hopeless. Now, what might that look like? Well, the prevailing view of death in the, the Greek culture developed over time. So, so those who lived in like 300 A.D. saw it differently than when our letter was written, which is around 52 A.D. But uh, it, it, was, it depended on who you were reading. There was like a concept of the afterlife that, that had uh, some punishment and some reward, but not all the time. But what all the ideas, no matter what you read, is this. It was all confusing, and it was all shot through. It was just marbled with an uncertainty and a dread. So the prevailing view was that your soul was your breath, and that's what activates you and animates you. And when you cease to be active, your breath goes out and becomes a shade, all right, basically a ghost. Now that ghost is recognizable, and actually their deeds follow them as well. So if you met a hero in the underworld, you'd know what they did. The misfortune was, for these shades though, it didn't matter what you did in the, underworld, in the other world, um, you couldn't enjoy anything. And so in the Odyssey, many of you were forced to read uh, Homer's Odyssey uh, in school, when they meet the shade of Achilles, that great hero, here's what he says. He says, I would rather be a slave on earth than to be the lord of the underworld. In other words, even if you weren't a really bad person, it was not a really, really good position to be in. It was just kind of a quasi-being. Now, there's some writing about the really bad people going to Tartarus, and then there was the really good people went to a place called Elysium, but everybody else just kind of hung out in Hades. Just, it was just a, a, an existence. Put a quote on the screen here. There's an idea of an Elysium where the temperature remained the same year round, the weather was always good, but only a few, the very good, go there. And they have to be translated directly, and they do not die. So did you catch that? Only the really good, and you have to be transported there. It makes me wonder if their pre-Christian idea that they defaulted to when they lacked anything else was this, that, that Jesus was going to be the one who transported them into this Elysium-like paradise. But if you die, you're excluded from it. And that's, that's, a, that's a real problem for those who died. They're just kind of stuck in that general underworld Hades-type situation. Now, if this is their default reason, no wonder they were distressed. I mean, what an awful, awful thought. You know, if you ask me if I want to go to some magical place like Disney World without my family, I would say, like, no, no. And they were distressed because of this. They thought they were going to be treated differently because they lived when Jesus came, but those who died had not. I think our public imagination is haunted by a similar uncertainty. You know, you can tell it by the stories that we tell. As a culture, where do we tell our stories? In the movie theater, of course. So you think about, you know, if you're a Star Wars fan, you've got, you know, Obi-Wan advising Luke, but he's just kind of like somewhere in the ether. If you're a Marvel fan, you've got the Black Panther who goes to that kind of iridescent kind of mirror world to meet the ancestors. We even have these themes for kids. Uh, if uh, you've seen Lion King, you know, the, 
the Lion King speaks from the constellation down to, to Simba or Moana, you know, where the grandmother leads by a, you know, a giant ray. Well, you know, we, we have these stories about this, but just I want you to note in all of these things, the person is kind of other. They're out there. They're in a sphere. It's not their body. Maybe they are transformed and can't even be recognized. But this uncertainty doesn't stay in the theaters, if you attend the uh, funeral of somebody who was very irreligious in life, I've noticed that their loved ones speak in terms of a better place, or now they're an angel. And even if they totally ignored that in their life, they can't help themselves. Why do we do this? Because separation is just too much for us to bear. The uncertainty is is unbearable, and so we reach for these things. Well, when their model broke, you know, the one in which they all get transported together as a happy assembly into this Elysium-like thing by Jesus, when that broke and something unexpected happened, what they were left for was an uninformed view of death, and that was clearly not enough to keep them from grief. And so they needed something more. You know, to their credit, they did the right thing. They asked Paul for help which seems like a really smart thing to do, right? When your model breaks, it fails you, you need a better model. You know, I'd like to say here, there may be somebody here today where you're just still kind of exploring this. Like, you don't necessarily buy everything, and you're just kind of here mapping things out. You know, first of all, I, I, you know, we're so glad you're here. But second of all, I'd like to encourage you to think about the limits of your model. Take, for example, a a pretty common way of approaching life that you could call, say, scientific empiricism. In other words, everything that is, everything that is truly real, must be able to be replicated or observed. Well, I can tell you this, that can take you to a certain level, and I have no idea what I'm talking about, okay? But it can take you to like a subatomic particle level, right? where you can actually observe certain things and patterns, but it can't take you any further than that. It's as if you get to the end of everything and all you're left with is staring into an abyss. It cannot tell you who you are, it can't tell you where you're going, and it can't tell you why any of this matters. So to get these answers, you have to move from the realm of the physical into the metaphysical. And here is where God comes in and says, I have spoken to you. This is who you are, why you're here, what your experience is, and where you're going. So if you have a model that gets broken, you need a new one. And Paul is going to supply it. There's only one thing that can save us from hopeless grief, and that's the hope of the resurrection. We see this in verses 14 through 17. The hope of the resurrection. In verse 14, we see the condition for the hope of resurrection. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. This is just a simple condition statement. It says, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Okay, so if you believe in the resurrection, that this man Jesus died, and according to all these witnesses, rose again, if that's true, then this. Through him, God will bring those with him who have died. You know, I I notice here that Jesus' name is used without any of his other titles. In other words, it doesn't call him Jesus Christ or Lord Jesus Christ. The point here is that it's Jesus, the man, 
the one that you knew, the one who died and rose again, and you saw him with your own eyes, witnesses, it's this Jesus. He himself will come. That guy is coming back. I had a moment of, of wow when I looked at the word in verse 14 where it says that Jesus will rise. When later on in verse 16, when it says these others will rise, it's the same word. Which once again ties in the fact that the resurrection of those who follow him is the same resurrection of Jesus. Our fate is bound up with him. And so once you have died, your fate is bound with him. And so it makes sense when he returns, you will be with him. So he will bring them. They'll accompany Jesus to join the living believers. What's happening here is that their sleeping bodies will wake. They will be reconstituted and glorified in the same way that Jesus' body was glorified at his return. And so that's the condition. All this is based on Jesus' resurrection and our connection with it. Now in verse 15, we see just this simple thesis concerning the hope of resurrection. Paul says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, in other words, you guys, all right, anybody who hasn't died, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Paul wastes no time here. So he knows that they are in great turmoil. And so he says, let me just give it to you straight here. The ones that are alive and remain won't precede those who are asleep. Stated another way, the believers who have died, the ones you're concerned about, will be raised to join the living you at Christ's coming. When he says that they won't precede them, we're going to talk about that word, but Paul uses the strongest language available to him to say it's a double negative. It's like he says, not, not. There's in no way, certainly not, by no means will they precede you. And what it means here is that those who are alive basically will not by any way have any advantage over those who have previously died. That is Paul's word to them. You know, this gets right to the heart of their hopeless grief, right? Because they're worried that I won't see them again or that their loved ones would have a disadvantage because they died early. And so here Paul is assuring them that the living will not by any means have any advantage over those that have died. You know, this letter was read. This was read to that congregation for the first first time. And I just imagine what that audience did at that point. When Paul read that to that group of people, I'm sure there was just like a gasp. And I'm sure there were, were tears of joy because they were so relieved. In verses 16 and 17, he moves on to give kind of a fuller explanation. So he just like, he says, here's my thesis, guys. There's no advantage. They will be all right. But then he says, let me explain this just a little bit more. Verses 16 and 17. The first thing I want to note in verses 16 and 17, that it is the Lord himself. In Acts chapter 1, this is right after Jesus' resurrection, he meets his disciples, he teaches them for a certain number of days, and then the biblical account is that he is taken up into heaven and they're in a cloud and they're watching him. And while they're standing there gawking, these angels appear and say this, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And so they told him that he would come back in the clouds in the same way he went. He went that way, he'll return that way. And it will be the same Lord, this same Jesus. 
the Old Testament background can tell us a little bit about some of the words that we see in this passage in verses 16 and 17. Um, a lot of talk about ascending and descending in clouds, but if we take just a second to think about it, I think we're going to see more of who Jesus is. On the screen, you'll see two, two verses. The first one, Exodus 19, relates to the time when God himself, the covenant giver, the name they wouldn't even say, Yahweh, he comes down to Sinai and he gives them the law. So this first verse is describing that. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud, what? Trumpet blast. So all the people in the camp trembled. All right, so there we see some of the words here. We saw today that there's, you know, thunders and lightnings and trumpets and a cloud. Psalm 47, this is one of those enthronement psalms that we talked about a ways back, where God isn't pictured as the heavenly king and he's going up to a throne. And it's looking back at Sinai and it's describing that. And here's what it says there. Gone, God has gone up with a shout and the Lord with a sound, and there it is again, of a trumpet. And so here we have in the Old Testament God, the covenant-making God, Yahweh, ascending up to his throne with all of the trumpets and the shouts and clouds and everything there. So he's ascending there. But in our passage today, we see somebody descending with the same things, clouds and trumpets and shouts. And we could go way off on this, and we're not going to, but this is one of the reasons that we believe that Jesus is God, the same in substance and glory. We see that he comes with great fanfare. The Thessalonians would have been familiar with the way that dignitaries came to town. So you'd go out, and the town dignitaries would go and meet them, and then they would come in with all this, this shouts and, and musical instruments, and they make a big fanfare. So they'd be used to that. Well, we see in the next three phrases the circumstances that surround Jesus' appearances. A cry of command, a voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God. And so as we noted in Psalm 47, God went up with a shout, and now Jesus descends with a shout. But it's a cry of command. What is it commanding? Well, probably it's connected to whatever happens next, which is the dead are being raised up. It's the voice of an archangel, uh, probably Michael, we would say, uh, one of the higher ranks of angels. And it's the sound of a trumpet of God. Now, trumpets have a really rich history in the Old Testament. Uh, if you know the history of Israel, when they're scattered all over the wilderness, and there's like, I don't know, a million of them, how do you, you don't have loudspeakers and you don't have phones, right? So how do you govern their life? How do you, how do you tell them it's time to break camp? How do you call them to feasts? How do you send them out to battle? How do you do these things? Well, you do it through trumpets. You can read this in Leviticus 23 and Numbers 10. It governed their entire life. And so here we have this trumpet summoning sleepers. It wakes them up. It says, you guys, get out of your tents. We're breaking camp. Come together for the feast. We're going now. And so it wakes them up. All this fanfare wasn't just for show. The purpose was to literally raise the dead. And they've been summoned like Israel by the trumpet. I think it's fascinating to note in verse 14 that 
it says that God brings them. So the idea is that their souls have been received by Jesus and they've been with God and they come with them. And now it says that they are raised first. And so their bodies are reunited. So they are reunited with their resurrected bodies. I noted with all the the stories that we were telling, like all the movies, um, it leaves their loved ones in this disembodied state. Or they're transformed, you know, like Moana's grandmother. They're, you know, transformed into something entirely different. That just strikes me as not very satisfying. You know, who wants to see their loved one, you know, disseminated among the ether or the stars? Who wants to not be able to recognize them? But Christianity has always respected the body. In other words, you will see them. You will recognize them. They will be united. We don't like this idea of being disembodied. It's, it's very, very unsettling. But Christianity insists on a bodily resurrection like our Lord's. And so they're summoned like Israel was, and they're reunited with their resurrected bodies. Verses 16 and 17 also talk about this reunion. It says, The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we'll always be with the Lord. So I'm going to take just a second here because I think there's probably thought bubbles all over the place. Um, Some of you may recognize that this is the main passage for the end times view called the rapture. The view that God will snatch up his people, both the living and the dead, from the earth before an unprecedented time of wrath is poured out upon the earth. Now, we'll talk about the views in just a moment, but I do want you to understand here that the main point of this passage is not to give you a full-scale eschatology. The main point of this passage is that it is a grand reunion. Notice the words together, the phrase with them and to meet the Lord. So the purpose here is to say, like, you're going to meet your loved ones, and there's going to be a huge reunion. But most of us are looking at other phrases with words like caught up, which is the word rapture, clouds, and in the air. Most of us here would hold to one of two views. And I'm just going to, like, sketch them out very, very briefly. Okay, so maybe you can orient yourself. The first view would believe that this event that is described right here marks the end of a 1,000-year reign of Jesus. Now, that 1,000 years may not be literal. It's just like a specified period of time. And it is happening in heaven right now and in the lives of his, his followers. And so this coming down right here marks the end of that time. And it marks the second coming of Jesus. And it precedes a judgment and an entrance into the eternal state. And so in that view, both the living and the dead are snatched up to accompany Jesus, this official from out of town, comes down, there's judgment, and then straight into the eternal state. The second view believes that this event right here that we're reading about marks the first stages of the establishment of a thousand-year reign of Jesus on earth, in which Jesus snatches up both the living and the dead, and then one of two things happens. Either they all go up to heaven and this time of judgment proceeds, or this happens at the end of a time of suffering and they come down and they establish this kingdom. Now, we have people of either persuasion present, and some of you are saying, I have no idea what you're talking about. 
Okay, well, my point here is that, number one, you can't establish either of those purely from this passage. Second of all, it's outside Paul's purpose to give them this full-scale view of the end times. You're going to have to go outside for that. But his purpose here is to address their fears that the dead will somehow be disadvantaged in some way and that they'll be separated from their loved ones who are going to live in some horrid (laughs) half-life. Well, no, says Paul. They have their bodies, they're not disadvantaged, and there's going to be a great reunion of the dead and the living with their Lord who comes in power. This is his aim, and we can see that also from the phrase, together with them. You know, together has both a time and an association sense. In other words, it happens all together, like it happens at one time, and also we're going to be gathered together in one group. I mean, I think I want you, I want you to think about the, the scary position where your cell phone dies, when you're supposed to meet somebody in a very crowded place like a stadium, right? And you're, you're concerned, number one, that you're going to miss them time-wise, and number two, you're not going to be able to find them. Well, Paul speaks to both of them right here. He says, you'll be one group, and it'll happen all at the same time. It will be together with them. Well, that's pretty cool. Now, everyone wants to know what comes next. After this meeting of the Lord in the air, do we continue on to earth, as one of those views says, or do we go back to heaven for a time? Well, as I said, it doesn't say. And your overall understanding will provide that answer. But the point here is not the place. The point is the person, the who. That phrase, we shall ever be with the Lord. Wow, we won't be separated from him ever again. And so Paul says, all those fears that you have for your loved one, you can rest assured. You won't be separated again. You will recognize them. That's good news indeed. Only the hope of a bodily resurrection and a reunion can counter this kind of grief. Okay, so what? Is there any sort of action attached for us today? You know, sometimes, uh, you know, people who are opening the word, they have to work really hard to say, well, here's how this applies. Well, how about this? Verse 18, therefore, encourage one another with these words. There you go, Paul. He gave us the application. How do we do that? Speaking it, preaching it, admonishing with it, singing it, taking communion, acting it out in that way by sharing it. I think one way for sure, is encouraging those who grieve. Um, We have to be sensitive to that. The receiving line is probably not the place. Uh, It may be a while before they can receive it. However, if you see somebody who's beginning to slip into hopelessness, you've got to be there to remind them of these things. They're with Jesus. They're in good hands. He'll bring them to you. You will be together again. We also must encourage each other in song. That's why I appreciated the song selection so much today. Uh, It was so spot on. This is what we're doing. When we sing, even so come, Lord Jesus come, or we sing, O glorious day, or we sing, be still my soul, we're preaching to each other. We're encouraging each other. We acted out as we did today in communion. What's that last phrase that Brandon said? We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what we're doing. We're encouraging one another. And one more word. 
The word to encourage, and that's what my translation says, can also be translated to exhort. In other words, to admonish somebody. You know, there may be, it may be a really good thing to take somebody to task, especially if they're being uninformed. You know, maybe to ask them, like if they're one of those folks who are trying to have it both ways. In other words, I, I reject the biblical account, yet I cling to these really vague notions like of a better place and stuff, and to say, hey, listen, uh, you, you can't have it both ways. There's one way this hope of resurrection works itself out. You know, could the truth be that they're terrified of the cessation of their being and they just can't accept the separation of death? You know, maybe you occasionally meet the, the person, I guess you could call them a nihilist, you know, who says nothing matters and then we die. You know, I'm cool with that. You know, there's not much you can do to someone who refuses to, to think about it in that way. However, if you come to somebody and they're actually at that point of noticing that their model is broken, and they're saying like, wow, I, I, don't, I don't know what to make of this, especially if they've been rocked by death. Uh, it would be good for you to exhort them and to say, hey, there is a model of hope. It has to do with a bodily resurrection. Armed with this model, we become more resilient. So remember I talked about the different models of suffering uh, where we can both suffer, encounter it bravely, and emerge maybe even into more suffering or a harder reality because we know there's an ultimate reality, a greater reality that we will come out to. You know, this is a really powerful model with which to approach life. And I think uh, you can look at some people who had this kind of model in the third century Um, Not too, too long after this was written, there was a plague that hit the Roman Empire. And uh, it claimed, it lasted 20 years and claimed 5,000 lives a day. Right? So think about that. Now, today, they they can't replicate it, but all the writings seem to describe almost something like Ebola. And it had come from northern Africa. So today, this plague is named after a Christian bishop named Cyprian. It's called the Plague of Cyprian. And in this plague, the Roman doctors gave up hope. They left town to go live in their villas in the country just to wait it out. And people would take their, their people who were dying and just put them in the streets. Do you know who uh, raised up to, to, to minister to those people? It was the Christians of the day. They gave them basic nursing care. They saved some of their lives, but they also supported the families of those by organizing food and and protection and shelter. And as a result, a couple things happened. Number one, the empire pinned it on the Christians and began persecuting them. But second of all, following this, Christianity exploded in the Roman Empire. Why is it the Christians through the ages have risked their personal safety to meet needs? I would say that this is the behavior of people who prepare. They, they have a, a, a model for this. They engage something bravely, and then they know that even if that reality, sickness or death comes upon them, is worse than when they started, they're okay with that because they've got that larger reality. So I've got a question. You know, is it time for you to begin to embrace the kind of model that can bring you through suffering, whatever it is, whether it ends in victory or in death, because what follows is going to be justice and bodily resurrection and a reunion of those that you love.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope of the resurrection. We thank you that you give us a word from outside our system so that we can understand who we are and where we're going. Lord, I pray today for those who may be grieving without hope. Or I pray that this would be a word that encourages their hearts. I pray for those who seek, who are potentially seeing the end of, of their model, seeing how it breaks down. Or I pray that they would come to understand your plan for them. So, Lord, we ask that we become a people of hope, a people of the resurrection. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.